Welcome to Counterfactual, the podcast brought to you by the Competition, Law and Foreign Investment Review section of the Canadian Bar Association. Counterfactual takes a fresh look at issues relevant to business competition and related areas of regulation and explores the real and hypothetical worlds to gain practical insights and debate policy. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Counterfactual, the podcast produced by the Competition Law and Foreign Investment Review section of the Canadian Bar Association. My name is Charles Tingley, and in this episode I'll be speaking with Dr. Leela Churgo, the new TD Macdonald Chair in Industrial Economics at the Canadian Competition Bureau. We'll be discussing Leela's fascinating career path and breadth of experience as an economist in private practice and at several competition agencies. And if you're planning a trip to wonderful New Zealand, Leela might even share her top recommendations for a killer travel itinerary. Before we get started, a few words about our guest. Dr. Leela Churgo is the Chief Economist at the Canadian Competition Bureau. Just prior to joining the Bureau, Leela was a Senior Consultant at Charles Rivers Associates. Her other most recent positions include Head of Economics at the Hong Kong Competition Commission and Chief Economist at the New Zealand Commerce Commission, Competition Branch. Her positions in Canada have included Special Economic Advisor to the Canadian Competition Commissioner and Economist Lay Member of the Canadian Competition Tribunal, the body responsible for adjudicating reviewable practices under the Canadian Competition Act. She has also worked extensively in the private sector, including as Vice President at Charles River Associates, She has provided technical assistance to foreign governments regarding competition law and policy on a number of occasions and has lectured on microeconomics, industrial organization, and transition economies. Lila holds a PhD in economics from the University of Toronto. Lila, hello and welcome to Counterfactual. We're so glad you could join us. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be able to join you. Um, Before we get started, I did want to actually just put that disclaimer in that anything that we discuss here are going to be my views and not necessarily those of the Competition Bureau, the Commissioner or the Department of Justice. Uh, Well understood and well said. Um, We have a fair bit to talk about, um, uh, but let's start if we can at the beginning, maybe even going back to your school days. And I'm curious, uh, how did you get into the field of economics? Uh, That's a bit of a sad, sorry, pathetic tale. It's not one to inspire anyone. I come from a family where math and science was very much promoted and neither of which I wanted to, to do, but to prevent my parents from having a heart attack and studying something like history or anthropology, I thought a good middle ground was uh, economics. So it was really quite lucky that I ended up liking it. Well, I think that's probably a story that a lot of lawyers can relate to, frankly. <laughs> um, was there was there anyone or anything that played a significant role in 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 you sort of becoming at least the type of economist that you are? Yes, um, and uh, and it, it was actually really pretty well into my career, and that is one one where I sort of first stumbled upon uh, industrial organization in grad school. And then also even when I was working as a consulting economist, where I had really just the the great pleasure and the benefit of working with both uh, Professor Frank Mathewson and uh, Professor Ralph Winter, which was yeah hugely influential and made a big difference in terms of just really deciding to make a career of this. 
You know, it's funny you talk about your, I guess, influences in, in, in the sense of people who, um, who steered you maybe towards a particular area. But it also occurs to me that there are schools of thought, uh, especially in that particular area of economics. And I know that, you know, I kind of came up the ranks in my own way and, and with your own thinking and being informed by a particular environment. Um, but, uh, you know, were you influenced uh, initially by a particular school of economic thinking during your formative years? Uh, well, I was quite lucky when I was in grad school that economics thinking in industrial organization was already post-Chicago school. And, uh, and I do think that the Chicago school very rightly challenged some of the non-rigorous thinking that was occurring in industrial organization and competition economics and the competition enforcement prior to that. Um, but, you know, all the way back in the late 1980s, when I was first started in grad school, uh, we were already past that way of thinking. I mean, there was very much this, yeah, yeah, you know, resale price maintenance or predation. Uh, maybe that doesn't make any economic sense. Oh, except, you know, when it does or, or um, something like exclusionary practices that that really aren't that common. Oh, well, except when they are and they do actually have an anti-competitive effect. And um, and so even though that was sort of late 80s, early 90s, I feel like, you know, the economics has already moved beyond Chicago school at that point. And, and so that very much was very influential and continues to be influential in terms of how I, I think about things. I mean, I would say it's the law that has been a little bit uh, later to the game, so to speak. I mean, I when I started uh, first working in this area, I was uh, amazed that resale price maintenance, for example, was you know not only per se illegal, but it was also criminal. I mean, that didn't change until... 2010 and and having that kind of approach for something like resale price maintenance I mean that's not Chicago school that's like pre-Chicago school and uh, and there are you know like lots of examples of that but uh, luckily I came to grad school when we were sort of I would think in a in a more open-minded uh, place in terms of the economic thinking. Yeah. And well, that's, that's quite interesting. So it sounds like already, you know, you, you, there was sort of a, an, an open-mindedness, uh, you know, uh, I guess, or, uh, a post open-mindedness, uh, approach or what have you when you, when you started, but do, do you feel like any, any school has, has kind of come up and, and either replaced it or is competing with, with, um, you know, the thinking, uh, you know, during, you know, most of your career or as are you still within the same framework? Oh, well, I would say I'm largely within the same framework. I mean, in terms of real developments, big developments in terms of the economics and thinking since I was in grad school and uh, and over the course of my career is really sort of this applied industrial economics, which is kind of that more empirical approach, which certainly has its pros and, and, and certainly has, has some, some cons as well. Um, I mean, the one place that I would say that my economics thinking has changed is, is the consideration of efficiencies. Um, 
And also, I would say that my experience in Hong Kong was really quite eye-opening as well. I mean, that really had this feel of, oh, you're not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy. I mean, it is such a completely different set of markets than I have ever seen either in Canada, the U.S., or, or in New Zealand, where you know, we have conglomerates and these massive families that control so much of the economy, the sort of question of politics and the influence of government. Uh, I mean, we even have triads playing a big role. And uh, so there, I would say that that sort of the traditional economic thinking and, and what I would have learned in school, you know, didn't apply in a sort of straightforward way. Well, that's that's a whole that's a great answer and very interesting with respect to Hong Kong. And I do want to get back to your experience uh, in Hong Kong and in other places uh, in a minute. But just sticking with your sort of private practice um, experience, um, I, you know, do you have any particular, exp- you know, what it's like to be an expert and um, you know, working frankly, working with lawyers and what that what's that what what that's like and and you can be honest there. But uh, you know, um, I, I I assume you've had some you know some interesting experiences uh, either as a witness or preparing and assisting um, uh, you know your clients uh, to develop their cases. Yeah, sure. I mean, I. I mean, there is always that divide in competition, economics, policy, law between the lawyers and the economists. I mean, they always seem to be at odds with each other, or at least that's the the myth, <laughs> or perhaps in some cases, the reality. Um, but I think that there's huge benefit in it in terms of that it, it forces you to, to explain the economics in a way that is is compelling and intuitive and and I am a believer in that that if you can't do that then perhaps you're a bit of a charlatan and uh, so I think that there's a lot of benefit in having to to work with with non-economists that way and uh, and I'm also been impressed over the years just the extent to which Lawyers have really become like pretty decent economists in many oh, that cases. That sounds dangerous. <laughs> well, yeah, don't overstep your bounds. <laughs> Understood. You mean, do you have any tips for lawyers working with economists? Yeah, don't let us get away with that sort of hocus pocus mumbo jumbo kind of talk. All right. Okay. Well, that's. Uh, I suspect people will take you up on that. Well, as they should, although who knows, maybe I'll come to regret those words. <laughs> and now, obviously, you've you've uh, worked, I suspect, even in private practice uh, on, on both sides of the enforcement um, side of the ledger, uh, whether for respondents or for uh, agencies. And I just wonder if there's any difference in approach that you take to those mandates or sort of as a an independent type advisor, you know, you would anticipate that you wouldn't necessarily, but uh, you never know. Yeah, no, not not really. I mean, I would hate to think that 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 you would take a different approach, just depending on whether you're working for an agency or or someone within uh, in the private sector. Yeah, so right. Maybe, maybe it's more different considerations with respect to to who your client is and um, and what uh, you know what uh, you know how working with them operates, perhaps. I'm not sure if there's anything coming out of that. 
Yeah, not so much. Yeah, I would say. I mean, the sources of information are different. The biases might be different, but at the end of the day, the economics is very much the same. Well, that's comforting. Um, so, I mean, that does bring us into your agency experience, which is rich and varied. Um, and just starting with Canada, of course, this is actually your second tour as chief economist at the Bureau. And um, it's obviously early days in that tour. But uh, nevertheless, I would imagine that, you know, times have changed since your first go round. And um, I'm, I'm curious to know whether you you see any particular significance uh, or significant change or, or maybe things have stayed the same uh, since your first tour and how you see kind of the landscape? Yeah, well, I would say th- some things have, have not changed. I mean, some of the preoccupations with the past, I mean, I'm always amazed that, that those preoccupations can sometimes just linger for not just years, but for, for decades. Uh, and then in other ways, uh, things have changed quite a bit. Uh, uh, very much so, I would say, in Canada, in the context that the emphasis on quantification, of, and particularly in the context of merger analysis and and trade-off between anti-competitive effects and, and efficiencies. Uh, so, so I mean, the, you talk about preoccupations that have that have been enduring. I suspect that might be a reference to efficiencies as well, uh, as part and parcel of this quantification, I suppose. Um, do you, uh, and maybe that's also an example of evolving thinking on your part, but, um, if you're able to share with us your, your thoughts on, on the, the proper place of efficiencies in, in, in Canadian oh, competition. Yeah. Well, not as a defense is <laughs> the, the, the simple answer. Um, I think that that, that is very much, uh, a place where the act needs to be reformed, um, where it should go instead, honestly, I'm not really all that certain. I mean, certainly the the Bureau has largely sort of suggested that it perhaps be a, a factor. Um, I personally think that that we should be a little bit sort of more expansive in our thinking and, and not sort of settle on any particular place for it at this juncture without kind of further consideration. I mean, one of the things that I think that that is is certainly open to consideration or should be open to consideration is more of a New Zealand Australian approach where there's an authorization and and it's only under authorizations that our efficiencies are considered or or maybe there is just some other third way that 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 might be better and uh, so I'm glad to see that 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 would likely be part of the consult consultation process or I hope it would be. Right. Well, no, that's interesting. And, and it may be one of the few reforms that is subject to consultation, it seems, based on, um, on how the, uh, the reform process is, um, is unfolding at the moment as part of the budget bill. But um, in any event, I, I guess I would also ask, are there any other areas of the law or jurisprudence that, um, that concern you at the moment? Well, the other big one would be that uh, it's not clear that Section 79, so the abuse provisions that that actually contains um, that would cover off facilitating practices. And, and of course, I very much would like to see that covered off in a clear way so that it's not subject to any kind of uncertainty. I mean, that is a means of abuse that's clearly considered and 
in other jurisdictions and that there have been cases under those and and it's there's no reason why Canada should be unique in that regard and in terms of not having covered having it covered off in the law. I mean, what, on that point, uh, you know, what are your thoughts about, I mean, that, that comes in, I think, at the, um, at the point at which purpose is considered uh, in terms of uh, a practice of anti-competitive acts rather than just the effects or the likely effects of the conduct. I think that's been viewed as a, um, you know, maybe not the highest already um, uh, sort of bar as a screen, uh, but not, nevertheless a screen. Um, <clears throat> Do you feel that maybe uh, there, there, there's a risk there of sort of writing out that purpose uh, sort of out of, out of the provision and, and just leaving yourself with, you know, sort of uh, potentially dominant firms and the effect of their conduct? I know in New Zealand, this has been a, a big issue uh, under their, uh, well, it's been reformed since, but uh, their, their old provision, I suppose, for abuse of dominance and, and how to... Um, allow dominant firms to distinguish properly, you know, and police their own conduct um, without risk of being always at, uh, you know, um, exposed to, to, to action? I mean, that's a, that's an excellent question. It's just, and it touches upon a, a bunch of different things and, and mainly just how do you identify um, abusive conduct and, is there some sort of special responsibility, which is the sort of terminology that they use in the European Union? And it's the kind of language that I'm not personally all that comfortable with. I mean, the one thing that I think that Canada does really have right compared to some other jurisdictions is that there isn't this um, sense that somehow dominance has to come first. I mean, there is the possibility that the anti-competitive act itself is the thing that created dominance. And, and that's not actually clear in other jurisdictions, but certainly, I mean, if, if you obtained your market power through the act itself, I don't think that you should be exempt from the law. Does that mean that, that there is greater uncertainty for businesses as a result? Because even a firm that doesn't have pre-existing market power can be in a situation where it runs into trouble? Well, the answer is, is yes. But I also don't think that we need to sort of overstate the uncertainty about that. It's not as if we have tons of abuse cases as any jurisdiction. And so, so and I think firms are pretty well placed to to self-police, as you say, to, to know whether they're engaging in an act really largely because of the anti-competitive effects as opposed to some sort of reasonable business justification. Well, I guess both of these topics, this and efficiencies, um, you know, are, are in a particular context and, and uh, you know, Canadian context that's been talked a lot about in terms of how the modern act was developed. And you know, for instance, kind of a relatively small economy, geography, uh, et cetera, need for scale and, and, and that sort of thing. But I, I, I want to take the opportunity to ask you whether you feel that, I guess, w- whatever the establishment looks like, um, and we've heard a lot of new voices recently in connection with law reform that, you know, in adjacent areas or in academia um, that, uh, that don't sound a lot like uh, the competition bar or, or even the competition bureau. Um, but, uh, are, do you feel that the so-called establishment is too, uh, stodgy, too conservative on any particular points? Are, are there any tropes that need to be, 
taken out and uh, dealt with? Well, I mean, you did mention one of them in passing just when you posed that question, and and that was that whole small economy thing. I mean, Canada is is one of the biggest economies in the world. It's it's certainly in the in the top ten. It's a G seven country. So, to the extent that traditionally the so-called small economy of Canada has been used as a reason to justify the efficiencies defense. I mean, I, I mean, I think there's all sorts of reasons why that defense shouldn't be there, but, but uh, the fact that Canada is, is not a small economy is, is, is just one of them. And, uh, you know, I remember foolishly using those words when I was doing some work for the world bank in Costa Rica <laughs> Uh, and I had the reaction exactly as you would want them to react, which was just complete, utter disbelief that I, in the context of Canada, would use the word small in, in any way. Um, so so if, if I were in Costa Rica and I used the word small, or even in New Zealand or in Hong Kong, if I used the word small, those, that word would have been, would be much better justified. So, so that is certainly a trope that I think that that we should uh, do away with. Um, Maybe it depends on, on, on how high the country is setting its sights and, and who it sits beside, et cetera. But um, I, I, I take your points. Um, I, I did want to just talk a bit about digital markets because I think they are, um, they, they appear to be, uh, you know, driving a lot of the public discourse. Uh, of course, antitrust has become quite, interesting and, and popular and political. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I go, and, and so digital markets as being the reason possibly why uh, competition laws need to be reformed to be able to accommodate, um, you know, conduct in, in digital markets that's that's said to be different and special. But, um, but first of all, just, you know, when I look through, you know, even going back quite a long way, uh, you know, enforcement activity, at least in Canada, I don't see too many cases uh, involving, you know, sort of so-called digital markets or, or, and certainly not kind of platform type um, industries. So I'm, I mean, I'm curious uh, to know, because I don't see it every day in, in my practice, um, you know, how much bandwidth do unique digital issues really take up in economic analysis today, you know, at the Bureau um, in terms of, you know, enforcement as opposed to, maybe sort of blue sky thinking. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I mean, I don't know if I'm fully at liberty to say as to how much bandwidth it, it, it takes up. I mean, certainly it was noted as, as being a priority area. Um, so it, it at least takes up some, some bandwidth. I mean, whether that we'll see results of that, that that's uh, not for me to say at this stage. Um, yeah, I suppose, um, you know, some people say, well, <clears throat> a lot of these platform parties are, are based in other countries and uh, <clears throat> certainly the U.S. and the EU in particular have have points of view. Um, you know, should we be, um, you know, just essentially keeping a watching brief rather than um, proposing significant, you know, changes to our laws, etc.? I don't know if you have a well, I would put that in sort of two different camps. I mean, there's the question of any kind of legislative reform and and this question of enforcement. And, and certainly I would say that in any matter, to the extent that you can free ride on enforcement taking place 
elsewhere because the remedy is also going to benefit benefit can Canada, then 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 you know why would you expend scarce resources on that kind of investigation? Um, to the extent, on the other hand, that that remedy is not going to benefit Canada or that there are sort of unique features to to the Canadian context, and so consequently you need sort of a unique Canadian solution, then 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 obviously that that is a different question and and may warrant the enforcement resources. In terms of legislation, I mean, there's all sorts of legislation that is well outside of competition law, or at least somewhat outside of competition law that is being considered or or actually they're going forward with in either Europe or or in the US. And um, I mean, at this stage, I would say that there are enough concerns with the Competition Act that, that we should sort of focus on amendments to the Competition Act. In the meantime, hopefully we'll see how the changes in law in Europe and, and the US might play out and to see if there are benefits to them, if there are things that, that Canada sh- can't actually benefit from without actually enforcing or amending or implementing some sort of new new law, then then all the all the better. Um, but in the meantime, I think the focus should be really amendments to the Competition Act. Well, I suppose sort of related to what you're you're discussing, um, but is also potentially part of the act, are discussions in, in, in some circles around, you know, expanding the objectives of the act, um, you know, so-called hipster sort of antitrust. And um, I, I don't know, does that um, resonate at all or does that cause you concern as, a, as an economist uh, for, you know, just what the act can can handle? Well, I mean, first I want to say, like, hooray to the hipster economists. I think that that is fantastic that they're rocking the boat that way, that they're drawing attention to these issues. Um, So that said, though, that I'm going to say I'm going to sound like an old fogey in reaction to them is that I don't think that the objectives of the Competition Act should be widened. Uh, but that that isn't the only thing that the hipsters are are talking about. I mean, they're talking about a, a bunch of different things that I think are well within the purview of the Competition Act or could be within the purview of the Competition Act, such as the treatment of nascent competition, like some better consideration of, of dynamic efficiencies, uh, you know, whether we have been lax in our merger enforcement, whether we're lax in looking at sort of potential abusive conduct, all of those things are things that that I think is terrific. That is is being questioned and and should very much be taken on board and thoroughly considered, and possibly have changes in enforcement action or or related policy, or you know if where the act currently falls short, to have uh, amendments to to take those into consideration. So just to switch gears here a little bit, um, I'm curious about how the role of economics is is streamed into the Bureau's decision-making. Um, I know that it seems sometimes that the structure of the Bureau changes every now and again and, and um, understanding where, for, for instance, you and other economists are housed in the organization, how uh, their input is taken into account in decision-making, 
Um, you know, sometimes it's a little mysterious as counsel. Um, you know, you do have some interactions with, with, um, uh, economist members of teams and things like that. But, um, but often it seems like things are going on in the background, but, um, in any event, uh, maybe you could enlighten us a little bit about how, um, you know, economic thinking is taken into account and it may, it may vary depending on, on the different, uh, things that the Bureau does, but, um, uh, I don't know if you can give us any insights. There. Yeah, I mean, first, I would say that where the economics team is housed shouldn't be taken as a signal of anything. As far as I, as long as I've known the Bureau, the economics team has been housed in some sort of policy type branch. And, uh, and that is a bit odd in the sense that that, again, ever since I've been familiar with them, even though they might engage in some of the policy work, they're far more engaged in, in enforcement. And, uh, and there has been a ongoing debate, which again is one of these things where I'm amazed that it's as ongoing and, and long lasting as it has been. And, not, and it's certainly not unique to, to the Competition Bureau, um, but I think it sort of stems mainly from the US where the economics team uh, there tend to be quite independent from the lawyers and, and I mean, the legal team there tends to be sort of, sort of part and parcel of, of the investigators or that they are the investigators. And, and consequently, they sort of have this um, independence or this sort of, you, separation of opinion that that sometimes other jurisdictions try to to do to duplicate um, but the truth is is that the other agencies are just not big enough to be able to duplicate what the US does I mean from what I understand I mean they almost have separate lines of investigation with the legal team and the economics team and sometimes they agree and sometimes they don't but they really don't tend to overlap as much as they would in other jurisdictions and so here and elsewhere you can't afford to do that the the economists are really much more embedded in in the investment Investigations, and I think that that is kind of the the right approach. I mean, you want to have that mutually beneficial exchange right right from the beginning. So they are there, even if you might not see them always. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, what what does your if if there's such a thing, and there probably isn't, um, you know, what does your average day or week look like at the bureau? And I recognize that it's a bit of a funny environment or has been for the last couple of years um, with COVID, but uh, nevertheless, um, is there sort of a, like a, I, I know I've experienced in other contexts, sort of like a, not with respect to the Bureau, but, uh, you know, sort of meeting itis or what have you, but I don't know whether you have, uh, you know, I'd, I'd just be curious to know what the, the chief economist sort of does at a high level. Yeah, sure. Sure. I mean, I have to say that it was a bit bizarre starting a new job. Uh, from home. <laughs> and and I still haven't really, well, not even really, I, I've not met anyone in person yet. Uh, so in that sense, I do think it was a real advantage just personally that that I had some familiarity with the Bureau. I, as you mentioned, I've, I've been TD McDonald chair before. Some of the personalities are, are the same. And, uh, and so, so it wasn't quite as strange as it could be to, to meet everyone for the first time over, over video. Um, but I, yeah, I do miss, I think the advantages that you could otherwise have with just sort of more personal interaction. 
Um, but in terms of kind of my day-to-day work, uh, I'm sure much to the irritation of investigation teams, I'll, I'll sort of come in and, and look at a 30,000-foot level as to kind of what's going on and, and try to provide the, the benefit of my 30,000-foot um, view. Um, one of the advantages I would say of that is that you do kind of get that fresh eye thing and hopefully some eyes with experience, but also because I am doing this across a, a number of enforcements, um, then if there are sort of potential inconsistencies in approach or if there are sort of benefits and and insights in one file that another file could benefit from, or um, or if there are policy implications that because team members are just so embedded in it that they're kind of not seeing that there are these policy in- implications, then, then then hopefully I am drawing those into relief and 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 then putting sort of a proper decision making process, helping to put a proper decision making process around that. I'm also involved directly in sort of policy considerations. Of course, you know we are looking at uh, amendments to the act. Some of them are already in play. Other than other ones are are going to be considered. So so quite directly involved in that. And uh, yeah, and occasionally I will get involved in a lot more of the kind of nitty gritty of any particular investigation if the idea is that I play a role of more of a of an in-house expert. Yeah, and along the way, hopefully I'm also managing to do some mentoring. <laughs> I'm sure you're very good at that. And I, I guess in terms of your accumulated experience with respect to all of that, let's talk about some of your international experience, because I think it's really interesting. Um, And just starting with New Zealand. So you and I obviously have something in common, which is that we both worked at the New Zealand Commerce Commission and we overlapped for a bit there. And so um, I'm always curious with something as significant as moving across the world, you know, what what took you to New Zealand? Restlessness, (laughs) a search for a bit of adventure, some different scenery. Uh, yeah, nothing more radical than that. And all very legitimate objectives, as far as I'm concerned. It sounds very similar to uh, to what took me there as well. But uh, but I know that for my part, <clears throat> you know, working at the commission certainly opened my eyes to different uh, ways of, uh, I guess, structuring competition, enforcement, and, and also to different legislation, case law, legal culture, Um so uh, I would ask, you know, what struck you most about your time at the commission? The differences in process, really, and uh, and that I I first really properly became aware as to how much process matters when I was at the competition tribunal. You know, you think that it would be more obvious earlier than that. Maybe that is that sort of narrowness in terms of the economic thinking, um, but process really does matter, and the process is quite different. In, uh, in New Zealand in terms of that they have a commission structure where that commissioners are making um, decisions and, and clearing and declining mergers, for example, but uh, also just in a very transparent way, being the decision makers as to whether they go forward uh, with uh, other invest uh, other matters and and bringing them bringing them to court. Um, so, so that sounds like, oh, well, perhaps 
that shouldn't have that many ramifications. But I do think that it has a lot of ramifications all the way down the line in terms of um, how mainly in terms of transparency, but 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 the transparency then also I think forces a type of a rigor in public statements that you you might not otherwise have. That's interesting. Um, certainly, I'm familiar with that with that process, the commission process, and it was uh, certainly new to me at the time. Um, is is there anything uh, to that that is? Uh, well, I suppose it would be quite really different from the from the bureau process. Although I don't know the the internal sort of paperwork element uh, of the bureau, but I do recall at the at the Commerce Commission, you know, it was quite a formal, um, you know, semi hands off or arm's length, I should say, um, approach between staff and um, and the commissioners, such that you're in a sense kind of taking your case to the commission for for albeit sort of internal decision making, but nevertheless, as you say, sort of sort of a I don't know. In some cases, it's transparent. In some cases, it's less so. But, but it's nevertheless a um, a separation, I suppose. And I don't know if that is something that uh, I assume is not quite the same uh, at the bureau. Uh, there may be, you know, um, advantages and drawbacks uh, in in different situations in terms of efficiency or or speed or what have you. But um, but I don't know if you come out on any particular uh, side of that. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that there are advantages to at least considering alternative processes. I mean, that there are um, amendments, of course, being considered or already in play with it with respect to the Competition Act. Um, and I don't know why the process, whether that is with the, within the Bureau itself, but also just more widely with the Competition Tribunal process, would that wouldn't be as open to consideration as to well can this be improved and and that is not a criticism of the of the current structure but rather you know sort of just sensible in terms of in terms of any process that 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 there that question should be regularly asked and and I would like to see it asked here as well You've mentioned the tribunal. Obviously, you were you were a lay member on the tribunal um, previously. Um, you know, are there any particular considerations you would you would throw open for debate uh, if you were to perhaps improve that process? I mean, just coming back to New Zealand, and it's it's the same in other places too. You know, the the regular courts, um, you know, deal deal with um, you know with those sorts of decisions in, in the enforcement context. Although, for that matter. You know, certain decisions uh, are taken by the commission itself that are that are public facing. But um, but uh, you know, not not to preempt your, your your response. But I don't know if there are any thoughts that you have in particular about the tribunal. Oh, I feel like that's just such a dangerous question, and that that no matter what I say, that I would I would get myself into trouble. Uh, I mean, but I don't think that I'm saying anything radical when I say that that process is incredibly slow. And, uh, and there have been attempts historically, even while I was at the tribunal to try to speed up that process. I'm not sure if this is something that they still talked about or is in play. But at the time that I was there, they talked about the, the chess clock approach. Do they still have that? And uh, yeah, No, I think they, they employ it routinely. Uh, okay, well... <clears throat> Yeah. As, nonetheless, it seems like that that the process is still very slow. I mean, I look at the Competition Tribunal Act, and and some of the wording that they have there is that 
of course, now that I said that, I can't think of the wording, but I mean, it's, you know, something along the lines of it as being an administrative tribunal and that it should be sort expeditious. of expeditious. Thank you. That's, that's the word. And, uh, you know, I mean, it hardly can be accused of that. I, I you know, I <laughs> and, uh, and, and also that tribunal act says that they can sort of implement whatever rules they want. And then they ended up for the most part, from what I understand, I'm not a lawyer implementing the, the federal court rules. And, and I think that there was an opportunity for the, for it as an administrative tribunal to be a little bit more nimble. I mean, I certainly, uh, think that there's a lot of advantage in having lay members who are well-versed in the area of, of competition law and, and economics. Um, but I don't know whether it has necessarily lived up to the original expectations. Right. So, so just switching back very briefly to round out a uh, discussion of New Zealand. I mean, uh, were there any... Um, are there any experiences there that you saw as, as um, you know, sort of the, you well, what you might imagine as the greatest successes, uh, and then conversely, any 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 particular frustrations or failures? Yeah, I feel like I'm sort of sort of trumpeting my own horn here, but I would say that that is something that I feel quite proud of is that when I look at the commission now versus what it was. 10, 11 years ago when I first went to New Zealand is, is that there is just much a much bigger role of economics than there than there would have been. And uh, and and that 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 process is now clearly entrenched. I mean the economics team is is much bigger than when I first started there. They now regularly hire economists as, as their investigators and uh, you know they always have had commissioners who are economists and that continues to play an important role. And so it's, it's nice to, to see that entrenchment of, of the economics. Certainly. And before you arrived, of course, the, um, the chair was an economist as well. Um, but uh, now just switching over to Hong Kong, because you said some very interesting things at the, at the top of the, uh, of the episode about, uh, I guess, some very specific um, jurisdiction uh, considerations uh, in terms of how, I guess, uh, businesses are organized. And uh, you mentioned family ties and sorts of things like that. But, um, but maybe just uh, elaborate a little bit on your experience there and, um, and whether there's, there's anything you can take away from that that informs your thinking, you know, outside of that context. Well, to answer your first, your last question first is that no, I did find Hong Kong really quite so unique that, but, that I don't feel that I got many tools that I would transfer here. Although having said that, I realize that that's not completely true. Um, I mean, one, Hong Kong really made me believe again, not that I my belief had necessarily had waned, but it reinforced my belief in, in the importance of competition law, that uh, Hong Kong didn't have such a law until late um, December or 2015, so December 2015. And um, so it's very late to the game. And 
and I arrived there in 2017. And there was, it's, I mean, there's just so much bid rigging and price fixing. It really is quite kind of rampant, I would say. Um, and, uh, and, and having a law makes a difference. Educating people makes a difference. I mean, they have done such a terrific job in just sort of putting out the message that, that you can't do this anymore. Um, and, and it's nice to know that, that in that sort of just fundamental way in terms of what ultimately kind of are the, the sort of the worst aspects of, of um, firm behavior that, that uh, Competition Act is trying to, trying to sort of prevent, um, that it can make a difference. I think Hong Kong is, is really a good example of that. Um, so in terms of tools, uh, then one of them I would say is that it's it was a you know sort of a great learning ground uh, for for cartel detection. And some of those tools I think are, are transferable um, elsewhere. But in otherwise, uh, as an outsider, as a non-Cantonese speaker, it is a very difficult economic environment to really sort of come up, come to a good understanding of. Uh, there are a lot of lots of behavior that from the outside doesn't seem to make economic sense or really any kind of sense until you sort of probe more deeply and you understand those those interesting linkages um, across families, across markets, across politics and, and all the rest of it. I wonder if that, I mean, I think when I think of New Zealand, I know that their, their commission is made up of a lot of sort of international folk, um, which makes it an interesting place as well. But um, with Hong Kong, that might be true as well, but it occurs to me that um, I guess on the one hand, if you're, if you're part of the culture, you would understand maybe better those linkages, but maybe on the other hand, you need uh, sometimes some outsiders also to uh, sort of bring a, a fresh perspective, and then between the two the two sides, you can you can address the issues. Yeah, and to date, Hong Kong has has done that. I mean, that they, they really do have that mix of of uh, people who are are from there and from 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 overseas. So you've obviously gone through uh, Canadian agency, New Zealand, Hong Kong back in Canada. Um, but, uh, you know, for a time you returned to practice and, um, I guess, do you see things, uh, and maybe this is just a, uh, a repackaged question from before and it's the same answer, but do you see things differently having been through the agency, various agency schemes? Well, you know, I would say that, that when you're on the outside, so no longer at an agency, it can feel very opaque, that there is this sometimes a sense of that black box that that information goes in, but nothing comes out. And I am sympathetic to, to business that that um, that they would like to kind of know what's going on. Uh, in that sense, actually, I would say that that, that is another thing that that um, is perhaps um better done uh, in, in some jurisdictions than elsewhere, say something like statement objectives. I think that that has a real um, benefit, not just in terms of um, letting business know and where their matter stands, but also just sort of the competition community and customers uh, in those markets to, to get them to sort of know where things stand in the interim as well. Yeah, I've always kind of thought maybe that... Uh 
I guess it's advocacy or, or how statements are done, um, you know, can, can be a good return on investment, uh, of the resources that are put in on the enforcement side, even when things don't, don't go anywhere ultimately. Um, I don't know if you, uh, if that's something you feel that, uh, some agencies are, are, have, you know, better developed mechanisms for doing that, um, or where you see advocacy uh, playing a role in Canada in particular. Well, I mean, I would sort of make a distinction between advocacy in terms of sort of pursuing government for sort of more competitive outcomes in terms of how they implement legislation and so forth. And, and that I think is, is something that is, is a consideration for many competition agencies, consider, including the Competition Bureau, and the, and the Bureau has an, an excellent track record, for, for example, in front of the CRTC in terms of that kind of, of advocacy. Um, but yes, otherwise, I think that there is benefit in terms of just, as I've said before, just being really transparent in, in terms of the thought process and, and what actually went into a certain decision, including if it was kind of a decision not to, to pursue anything further. I mean, that has a lot of value in it as well. I, I would tend to agree. So we're going to switch gears, Leela, and... Um, it's time now for the segment that we call Overtime. Overtime is where we take ourselves outside of regulation play and explore some additional lesser known dimensions to our guests, including their personal interests and pursuits. In compliance with National Hockey League shootout format in our Overtime segment, we take three shots at getting to know our guests a bit better. So here goes, Leela. In addition to your successful career as an economist, some of our listeners may not know that you are also an accomplished author and playwright. What book or play would you recommend to our listeners? It's a play, um, Copenhagen by Michael Frayn. Do I just get to say the title or do I get to say a little bit more about it? Oh, we'll allow a blurb. Okay. It's about the meeting of two physicists, um, Niels Bohr and Heisenberg, in 1941. And nobody kind of really knows what happened in that meeting. Heisenberg was working for the Germans um, on uh, the atomic bomb. And uh, was he there as a spy? Was he there to potentially leak secrets, potentially try to sort of slow down the development of the bomb? And, uh, and the thing that is just so amazing about the structure of the play is that Heisenberg is actually the physicist who is responsible for the so-called uncertainty uh, principle. And so the uncertainty about what happened at those events and the uncertainty principle in physics are just beautifully overlaid. So that's my pitch for that play. Fantastic. Now, I, is, is that available in print only or is that uh, running Well, somewhere? you know, actually it was recently performed, I think, at the National Arts Centre. Um, so look out for it. It first came on the stage probably in early 2000. So it's starting to get a little bit um, dated in terms of how often you're likely to see a production of it. But I actually think there might even be a film version of it which I haven't seen. So who knows whether it's any good. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Duly noted. And now second shot on goal. Uh, time to cause a little controversy among your Kiwi compatriots. 
What is the top, in your view, must-see attraction in New Zealand? Okay, I'm going to go with something in the North Island um, because I think that despite it having kind of a more unique topography to the South Island, the South Island is normally the favorite because it has the big dazzling uh, mountains and lakes. And for, for good reason, it, it, it is sort of dazzle, the dazzle component. But but I don't think that the North Island should be overlooked. And in the North Island, I would say it's the Tongariro crossing is, is my must-do recommendation. Uh, I would heartily endorse that recommendation. Um, and so lastly, if you were not an economist doing what you do today, what would you likely be doing? Oh, well, that is your easiest question to date. I would want to be a paleoanthropologist. Okay. How have you developed that interest? I, I, I have long been interested in hominids. So thank you for being so uh, open and honest in, in, in our overtime segment. I, I'm all worried that I've been too honest in the, my bureau. Oh, there's no such thing. Patriots no such are going to be sort of lamenting that they let me speak. <laughs> Not to mention, you know, people I might still know at the tribunal. <laughs> but anyway. No, look, if it's not controversial, it's not interesting. So I guess I would also ask, do you have any particular advice for a junior economist or professional coming up the ranks today? To not be afraid to change organizations, to even change countries. I mean, I say that from personal experience, but there are actually studies too that show that that there are long-term career benefits from moving around. You know, there is that cliche, I think, of millennials only staying in a job for, for very limited periods. I mean, I'm not suggesting that people switch so regularly that 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 is a de deterrent in terms of sort of career prospects because you don't seem to have sort of commitment. Um, but gosh, that breadth of experience is, is, is terrific. I mean, it just provides sort of insights that you might not otherwise have. Well, very well said. I know certainly my, my, albeit more limited uh, overseas experience uh, was, was transformative. Um, Look, Leela, you've been extremely generous with your time. Uh, it's been so nice to speak with you. <clears throat> and I would like to thank you for taking the time out to share your experiences and insights with the Counterfactual podcast. All the very best uh, with round two as chief economist at the Bureau. And we'll look uh, forward to catching up with you again very soon. Thank you very much. And thank you for letting me take part in the inaugural counter Counterfactual. Excellent. Been our pleasure. Thank you for listening. Counterfactual is produced and distributed by the Competition, Law, and Foreign Investment Review section of the Canadian Bar Association. The opinions expressed by the participants in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily represent those of their employer or other organizations. If you enjoyed this podcast or would like to join the Canadian Bar Association, please visit www.cba.org slash sections slash competition dash law.